I want to talk tonight about karma and equanimity. Neither of these are simple or easy topics, so I might have bitten off quite a bit in putting them together, but they're interrelated. And so hopefully you'll see that as we deepen our understanding of karma, it deepens our capacity for equanimity And that if there's more equanimity, we really can see and um, be uh, aware of, more motivated not to act in ways that uh, cause suffering, cause uh, the kinds of actions that lead to suffering for self and others. So not so much acting out of reactivity, out of our deep habit patterns. So these two kind of cycle in and out of each other. And I've been thinking recently about what I call chipmunk mind. And I don't know if you do your walking meditation outside, you will have seen chipmunks running along the rock walls, darting up and down the trees. If you're driving, they're doing these kamikaze dashes across the road. What's motivating them? Chipmunk mind. What it seems to me is food and fear. Let's forget about the sex part. I don't think it's that this time of year. There's no sex happening for the chipmunks. That's springtime. We are not that different. Food and fear, right? Also no sex, hopefully, (laughs) happening here. But even with these bigger brains, isn't this in some way these deep uh, animal kind of urges? And when I talk about food, yes, literal food, but also more metaphysical food, the way we look for things to feed us. And so this reaching out, grasping, pushing away out of fear. This is the realm or the the, the possibility of developing more equanimity, not using our brains to get entangled in those forces because it just leads to suffering, food and fear, the, the whole trying to hold on, grasp, reach, and the pushing away. And so the essence of our practice is the simple directness of here and now and seeing these urges for what they are instead of being ruled and driven by them, especially when they're unconscious. There are two main manifestations or aspects of equanimity. And the first is as a mental experience, a capacity of mind. And this is the pointing to a mind that's balanced and spacious. This is an equanimous mind. So it's a mental factor that we can know directly and that we can cultivate through clear seeing, through wisdom. The meditation that Joseph led this morning was a pointing to that kind of mind vast, spacious, where things were just arising within us and we weren't, hopefully, being reactive to them. We really saw the impermanent nature, the arising and passing of experience held in the vastness of this kind of awareness. Really a deep pointer to this quality or capacity of equanimity. And the opposite is when we're obsessed, when the mind is gripped, we're in that food-fear modality, obsessed with objects, with experiences, with time, um, with self. Suffering, right? When we're in that kind of grip. 
I had a, a clear but very simple experience of this just a, shortly before we came here on the retreat. I was at home, just in our house, and saw a spider on, on the wall. Rather large spider, not an, you know, one of those big black ones, not the little sort of daddy long legs kind, but a big hefty looking spider on the wall. So I was like, okay, need to get the spider outside. We have all these different tools for helping with the spider. Very calmly and equanimously, you know, got the spider safely into the little uh, trap thing and took it outside, no problem. A lot of equanimity. Later that very same day, and this is why this stuck in my mind, I was just sitting on our couch in our living room, felt a little tickle on my arm, looked down, you know, it's just instinctive, right? It was probably a smaller spider. It certainly wasn't a dangerous spider, but it was on me, you know, on my arm. And it was just so ludicrous. The, the, the strength of the reactivity from the spider on the wall, so calm and clear, helped the spider on me, you know, just automatic. And of course, what I did, what did I do? I went like that, and the spider dropped somewhere down in the crevices of clothing and couch, and therefore had to spend the rest of the evening, you know, worrying, you know, where's the spider? Because I didn't have that steadiness of mind to just, you know, if I just walked outside or even stood up, it could have dropped off in a safe place. But that's reactivity. That's what happens when we're not... um, in that spacious state. The second aspect of equanimity is more the wisdom aspect. It's really seeing Dhamma, the nature of how things are with this deep acceptance. This is how things are right now. This is the nature of reality. And that, in the Buddha's teaching, is equated with an understanding of karma, seeing the cause and effect, dependent nature of experience. But it comes with this deep and profound acceptance, and this is where the two are clearly linked. And Padma Sambhava, that great uh, 8th century Tibetan master, linked the two in this way, brought them together, where he his, his famous phrase, my view, and that means his, his mind, basically. My view is as vast as the sky, yet my actions and respect for the laws of karma are as, are as fine as a grain of barley flour. And I love, again, just the juxtaposition of this, this vastness of his understanding of the mind, his experience of the mind, yet not forgetting the power, the importance of the laws of karma. It's a bit like a guy talked about the other day, people who hold on to emptiness are incorrigible. You know, if you just stay in that vast openness and don't pay attention to the reality, laws of karma, really missing something, often actually quite harmful. So we need to keep bringing these two aspects together. So what is karma? What are these laws of karma? And I often will say karma, K-A-M-M-A, that's the Pali um, pronunciation and spelling of the word karma. I have to use my American accent, karma, K-A-R-M-A is Sanskrit. So, you know, you'll hear people use them interchangeably. They're pointing to exactly the same thing. And it's a really misunderstood concept um, in the Buddha's teachings, both in, in the Buddhist world when you hear teachings, but certainly outside of it was, you know, 
back in the 60s, we started hearing about instant karma, right? Instant karma is going to get you. And it was really this sense, it was a, a, a retribution. You know, karma is going to get you. You'll get your just desserts, you know, this kind of thing. Something about getting what you deserved. And I've heard people say things like, oh, you got this terrible illness or this thing happened to you because you... They're sort of a little condescending. You needed to learn something about this, right? Or, you know, even worse, I would say, you did something bad. You deserved this to happen. Some way you're, you're deserving of this to happen. And use the teachings to blame or judge people, kind of put them in a box or a category. I call that metaphysical malpractice. It's not helpful. It's, 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 it's not compassionate. And it's not even true or right, really uh, a misunderstanding. It's like trying to drive, looking in, always in the rearview mirror. You end up crashing into things because you don't have the full picture if you're doing that. So karma, in the Buddhist terminology, literally means action. Vipaka karma is the fruit or result of action. So two different things, karma and vipaka karma. We tend to kind of use the word loosely and a little interchangeably, so I might even do that tonight. But when the Buddha was talking about it, he was quite quite clear about karma being action and vipaka karma, the fruit of action. And again, this interweaving of equanimity and karma, um, where in the uh, field of the Brahma-viharas, these teachings and practices of of the, the beautiful qualities of mind and heart that we can develop, We've talked about them a lot, Um, metta being our foundational practice, loving kindness that we're teaching every week here. But then the next is compassion and joy. And the last Brahma-vihara is equanimity. And each of these Brahma-viharas has a practice to develop it. The practice for equanimity is often the most challenging for people because it involves repeating some variation, and this is, uh, say, the classical phrase is, all beings, or you or I, are the owners of their karma. Their happiness and unhappiness depends upon their actions, not upon my wishes for them or for me or whoever. And every time we get to that point when we're teaching the Brahma-viharas, especially on an intensive Brahma-vihara retreat, It's inevitable that people say, I've just spent all this time wishing well. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you be joyful. May you be kind. And now you're saying your happiness and unhappiness depends upon your actions, not upon my wishes. What have I been doing all this time? And it's understandable, but it really points to what we say over and over again in the metta practice. It isn't about our wishes literally and directly affecting someone else. It's about transforming our own capacity for whatever that quality is, kindness, joy, compassion. And with equanimity, it's really seeing not that we're telling the other person about the teaching or law of karma, we're inviting ourselves to understand it. And there's a big difference there. We're not wagging our finger at someone else, but saying, and, and over and over again to ourselves, we need to understand this. We need to develop the equanimity that lets us open to that truth about the power of actions and that we can't control someone else's happiness or unhappiness. 
So karma is considered to be what uh, the Buddha called one of the four imponderables, things that if you try and figure them out, try to understand them, literally will drive you crazy. So the workings of karma are one of those four imponderables. So the Buddha again and again said, not helpful to try and figure out the laws of karma, especially with the understanding that we have right now. But understanding how karma works is central to the Buddha's teachings all throughout the suttas, so important, woven into teachings on sila, on ethical conduct, and how you know, if we act ethically, morally in the world, there'll be more potential for happiness. The teachings even of anatta, not self. We uh, sometimes give whole talks that are based on understanding how these two go together. The whole understanding of Buddhist cosmology. Again, we don't talk about it so much when we're in intensive practice, but the Buddha talked about the different realms and rebirth, and woven within that was an understanding of the laws and the working of karma. The teaching on dependent origination, which we've touched a couple of times, the 12 links that start with ignorance, shaping our mental formations, and therefore our mind-body experience, leading us again and again into craving, becoming, birth, old age, sickness, death. And if nothing changes, that wheel just keeps uh, rolling. So really the wheel of conditionality of cause and effect. And if I'll talk more about this a little later. If nothing changes, it just keeps going. It, underpinning that is, is the law of karma. In the Buddha's time, this teaching or understanding of karma was prevalent. But then it just simply and literally meant action. And there were three common views about what karma meant or how it operated. The first was that all present experience is the direct result of previous actions. And it was very deterministic. If you were born into a certain caste or clan, into whatever your gender was, that was your fate. If your father was a potter, you were in the potting clan, that's all you could hope for in this life was to perpetuate that. So there was no room for free will in that understanding. It was really a way to keep society very stable, but you could say repressed. It was like no chance of moving out of those roles that were preordained. The next understanding was all that we experienced was a result of the God's creations and actions, and that therefore that meant a lot of, you know, rites and rituals and supplication and offerings to the gods to try and get them to look kindly on us. And then the last common view was there was no uh, cause, rhyme or reason for any of this. It was all random and completely unpredictable. They were the three main prevailing views. The Buddha rejected all of those. He said, yes, karma means actions, but he said what's important in a karmic unfolding is intention. And this was key. He said, once you understand this, you can see there is a lawful nature um, to this unfolding of karma. It's not random. It's not God's. We can understand it. But intention is key. 
And I think I used this when my talk on, on uh, intention, you know, that if you're walking along and you don't see an insect, an ant on the ground, and you step on it without any intention, there's not said to be a karmic repercussion. But actions that we do deliberately or out of intention, even if the intention isn't uh, as clear as, as uh, doing something really deliberately, it has different karmic kind of weight. And so he said it was a natural law of the universe, not creation of the gods, but not just personal to us. And it certainly wasn't a system of blame or judging, but there wasn't someone or thing or identity, uh, I, I, uh, uh, entity outside of us that was kind of moving the levers as much as sometimes it might feel like that or certain religions point to that. Even in, um, you could say, external entities. I mean, we, we create, even though many of us, we might have a certain relationship to a God, the God, but we create other entities, right, for our supplication. As we're in childhood, these fairy tales that we're told, the tooth fairy, you know, Santa Claus. What, what's the very promise of Santa Claus? If you're good, you'll get presents. That's a, supposedly a karmic unfolding. Well, my cartoon tonight that I share with you is from, I think, one of the great philosophers of this century, a pair of philosophers, actually, Calvin and Hobbes, about karma and intention. So Calvin, Calvin for those of you that know, Calvin is a, I don't know how old he is, seven, eight, a young boy, and he has a stuffed tiger who he makes into an imaginary friend. And Calvin is always kind of the voice of the id, of wanting, grasping, greediness, self-centeredness. And Hobbes, the tiger, is the voice of reason. So here's Calvin and Hobbes walking through the woods on a snowy day. And Calvin is saying, I wish Santa Claus would publish the guidelines he uses for determining a kid's goodness. For example, how much does he weigh motives, intention, does he consider the kid's natural predisposition? I mean, if someone is sickeningly, if some, oh no, sorry, I mean, if some sickeningly wholesome nerd really likes being good, it's easy for him to meet the standards. There's no challenge. Heck, anyone be, can be good if he wants to be. The true test of one's mettle is being good when one has an innate inclination towards evil. <laughs> and Calvin at this point is starting to roll a snowball. And he goes on to say, I think one good act by me, even if it's just to get presents, should count as five good acts by some sweet-tempered kid motivated by pureness of his heart. Don't you? And then on... On the edge of the frame, he's got his snowball. There's Susie. Susie is his nemesis. And so there's Calvin with the snowball. Hey, Susie! Pow! And he slams her with the snowball. And Hobbes says, of course, in your case, the question is academic. <laughs> but Calvin has the last word. I wanted to put a rock in the snowball, but I didn't. That should be worth a lot. <laughs> That's how we usually think of karma, right? All of these calculations and, you know, woulda, coulda, shoulda. Uh, 
not so, uh, and trying to manipulate, you know, even if we're not doing it consciously, karma works more at a more finely granulated level than that. And I don't think uh, Calvin was going to get too many presents that year. Traditionally, um, as I said, this teaching is woven into an understanding of the Buddhist cosmology and particularly rebirth, that we come into this life with a certain momentum, you could say of karma predispositions, and how we play that out in this life determines our next rebirth. I'm not going to go into that. This is not a place, especially in uh, uh, practicing as we are, to have this kind of debate. And I don't think it really matters for what I'm going to say tonight. As Manindra, Joseph's teacher, would often say, you know, you don't have to believe in rebirth. It's true, but you don't have to believe in it. Um, I'm not even going to say that, kind of hold it as an open question. But we can see this teaching of karma in this very life, even as far as rebirth, because we're born constantly. Don't we take birth constantly into certain selves? You know, you just wake up in the morning and you're a grumpy self or a motivated self or a bright self. A good meditator or a bad meditator as we judge ourselves. We can take birth into our roles as a mother or a daughter or a father or a friend. We can be sick or healthy, fearful or full of faith and determination. And each one of those is an identity that we can take on and act out of. How we hold that identity shapes how we relate to what happens to us. Joseph was talking, it was just last night, seems a long time ago, about you know moods and states of mind and how they shape our re- reactions to the world. This is just a more solidified um, sense of that or experience of that. And it conditions, as I said, our next experience, and there's constant feedback that either fulfills and props up that sense of self or challenges it and... and, and, and uh, um, has caused a lot of suffering around as we try to hold on to it. You know, so a simple scenario where a mother, out of love, giving advice to the daughter to do some action this way or that way, the daughter perceiving advice as nagging, wanting independence, pushes that the mother away. And if that cycle gets perpetuated, it 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 uh, the people get dropped into those roles, and there's no um, free will there. It's just playing out those roles. They get perpetuated. I think we've used this line before where the, the Buddha said, that which the mind frequently dwells upon and thinks about will become the inclination of the mind. This is that rolling on, this perpetuation of selfing. If we act out of aversion, we tend to act in ways that people perceive as angry or harming. And it's very likely that we'll get those kind of reactions back and the cycle perpetuates. Someone used the line this morning that's so true in in our meetings, hurt people hurt people, hurt people hurt people. Out of our fear or wounding, we act in ways that people feel is harmful and they act back towards us 
in that same way to protect themselves. And so these cycles get perpetuated. The same happens with acts of generosity or kindness. What do you feel towards someone who's acting towards you with a great deal of compassion or kindness? It evokes that meeting back, doesn't it? To also be kind, to also be sensitive. So this is how we can see this kind of unfolding of karma just in a moment, in a set of experiences, certainly in our life, in this general way of patterns unfolding and self and rebirth. But in the suttas, the Buddha didn't use this teaching as a finger wagging or a pointing to people being blamed or deserving to suffer, whatever their current experience was. It was really just, as I said, this kind of vaster view of seeing how we're always in this web of causes and conditions. But the clear pointing again and again was with clear seeing, with wisdom and understanding these patterning, the causes and conditions, and seeing that everything is in flux, is changing, we can actually shift the karmic unfolding. So again, back to dependent origination, where the teaching is if we start with ignorance, it shapes the subsequent um, links that are all about how our current moment experiences manifest out of our conditioning. Ignorance shapes our conditioning. Our conditioning shapes this current moment experience. We act out of that. We're just caught again and again. But if we bring wisdom, equanimity, clear seeing into any of those links, we can shift, interrupt, or even stop that cycle of suffering. This is what's liberating about this teaching, um, seeing that our life is shaped by our choices. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, our choices are habitual, instinctive, and unrecognized. They're reactive. We're just operating out of our neuroses and our fears. And it's so automatic, we don't even see the possibility of choice of change. But mindfulness, and we've said this again and again, the power of mindfulness is inserting a choice point through clear seeing, through knowing what's happening, bringing wisdom in, understanding these patterns of mind and how karma works, and making a wiser choice. Again, we've said this again and again. And then the whole game changes. This is so powerful. I like what Tanasara Bhikkhu, the um, Buddhist uh, monk and scholar who lives in San Diego, says about this. He says, instead of promoting resigned powerlessness, the Buddhist notion of karma focuses on the liberating potential of what the mind is doing with every moment. Who you are, what you come from, is not anywhere near as important as the mind's motives for what it is doing right now. Even though the past may account for many of the inequalities we see in life, our measure as human beings is not the hand we've been dealt, for that hand can change at any moment. 
we take our measure by how well we play the hand we've got. If you're suffering, you try not to continue the unskillful mental habits that would keep that particular karmic feedback loop going. If you see that other people are suffering and you're in a position to help, you focus not on their karmic past but on your karmic opportunity in the present. Someday you may find yourself in the same predicament that they're in now. And so here's your opportunity to act in the way you'd like them to act towards you when that day comes. It's basically the golden rule. Treat others as you would like to be treated. But in it, seeing the power of intention and choice in that unfolding. It's not haphazard. It's not about blame or judging, but really the potential in the moment to bring wisdom and compassion in. So intention is key. I gave a whole talk on intention, so just touch on this lightly here. And in that talk, in that talk I mentioned that we can't use that understanding as kind of a get out of any responsibility for actions thing. Oh, I didn't, it wasn't my intention to hurt you. I didn't, when I said that, I meant it kindly. You might have, um, it might have felt hurtful or harmful to you. It wasn't my intention. We have to be clear about acknowledging impact when we get that feedback and really have some humility and and responsibility for that because the karmic unfolding is still happening. How we respond in the moment is still a karmic unfolding. Can we respond with kindness and compassion and understanding as we get feedback about our actions of word and uh, deed? So this is important to remember as 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 I say anything about this. Uh, I found this um, writing from Goethe, the German uh, poet, philosopher, writer, quite an amazing mind. He says, I have come to the frightening conclusion that I am the decisive element. It is my personal approach that creates the climate. It is my daily mood that makes the weather. I possess tremendous power to make life miserable or joyous. I can be a tool of torture or an instrument of inspiration. I can humiliate or humor, hurt or heal. In all situations, it is my response that decides whether a crisis is escalated or de-escalated, and a person is humanized or dehumanized. If we treat people as they are, we can make them worse. If we treat people as they ought to be, we help them become what they are capable of becoming. So really talking about this expansive view and the power of intention in shaping not only our experience, but the experience of those we've been. Again, not controlling it, but just influencing through our actions and how we relate to them. But key in this is making intentions conscious, doing what we can to actually bring awareness to this potent force, this this moment of choice. It's why we include it as one of the things we pay attention to in our meditation practice. It's so powerful. 
in my talk on intentions, I spoke about sort of my comic unfolding of the intention I had to go to and try to be around wherever the Dhamma was being practiced or shared and Dhamma people and communities were and making choices to keep aligning with that and how it really, you know, shifted my whole life and unfolding and and I'm so grateful for that. And so we can all reflect on our karmic unfolding, all of the intentions it took to to get you here and the ones that have kept you going, the choices you've made when you felt despairing or at a loss or confused or in pain, to just keep going. It's powerful. As we say, every action preceded by intention. So we need to keep seeing that it's possible to bring this more into consciousness and therefore to hopefully uh, act with more wisdom, kindness, compassion. And we keep emphasizing that it's the training of the mind that's important here, the training of the mind to know what's happening. Not particular experiences, they're ephemeral. They'll come and go, can be powerful, um, insightful, but they pass. But the training is a capacity, this training to know, to be clear, to be present, is what we can um, keep deepening, take with us when we leave retreat. And so the Buddha talked all the time about this training. There's a a sutta that I like that has the classic um, form of many sutta um, discourses with a lot of repetition, but it's so it really sinks in. This is from the Anguttara Nikaya. Abandon what is unskillful, monks, It is possible to abandon what is unskillful. If it were not possible to abandon what is unskillful, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because it is possible to abandon what is unskillful, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Are you getting the message? If this abandoning of what is unskillful were conducive to harm and suffering, I would not say to you, abandon what is unskillful. But because this abandoning of what is unskillful is conducive to benefit and happiness, I say to you, abandon what is unskillful. Develop what is skillful, monks. It's possible to develop what is skillful. If it were not possible, to develop what is skillful, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because it is possible to develop what is skillful, I say to you, develop what is skillful. If this development of what is skillful were conducive to harm and suffering, I would not say to you, develop what is skillful. But because this development of what is skillful is conducive to benefit and happiness, I say to you, develop what is skillful. This is the Buddha's words and teaching to us. It's possible and it's conducive to well-being and happiness. What is skillful? The Buddha again speaking to us. This is 
from uh, the Majima Nikaya, uh, and again, advice to his son. I think again, last night Joseph gave a sutta where the Buddha was speaking to his son, Rahula. The Buddha says to Rahula, what do you think, Rahula? What is a mirror for? And Rahula says, for reflection, sir. And the Buddha says, in the same way, Rahula, bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts are, be, are to be done with repeated reflection. Whenever you want to perform a bodily act, you, you should reflect on it. This bodily act I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results? If, on reflection, you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both, it would be an unskillful bodily act with painful consequences, painful results. Then any bodily act of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if on reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it, it would be a skillful bodily act with skillful consequences, happy results, then any bodily action of that sort is fit for you to do. And the same with verbal acts and mental acts, this reflection. Again, this is the wise use of thought. It's not about abandoning thinking, having a vacancy of mind, but really this landing in the moment with, with clarity. And many of you may have heard there's a modern rephrasing of that teaching that people say the Buddha said, but we can't find it anywhere. So just take it as a modern rephrasing. The thought manifests as word. The word manifests as deed. The deed develops into habit and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. Just this um, cycle that happens, that from the thought hardening into habit and then character, if it springs from love, that will shape this heart and mind. So watch the thought and its ways with care. And again, the Buddha talking about what is unskillful from the Majjhima, the roots of the unskillful. Now, what is unskillful? Taking life is unskillful. What is not given? Sexual misconduct, lying, abusive speech. These are all the precepts that we take. Divisive tail-bearing, idle chatter, covetousness, malevolence, wrong views. These things are termed unskillful. What are the roots of unskillful things? Greed, aversion, and delusion. These are termed the roots of the unskillful. And what is skillful? Abstaining from all those actions. And what are the roots of skillful things? Non-greed, non-aversion, non-delusion. These are termed the roots of the skillful. And again, when the Buddha teaches in this way, as we hear these words, it's not a list of commandments or right and wrong. It's really a teaching on what develops happiness. That if we live and act in accordance with these teachings, it is for our well-being and the well-being of others and the well-being of both. And that it's possible as we bring more mindfulness to our thoughts, our words and our deeds, that there's choice points there. 
And we're holding this framework of understanding what leads to unhappiness, what leads to happiness, and the possibility of making wiser choices. Again, we don't use this to blame or judge ourselves. Oh, you know, I said that bad thing or I was unskillful here or there. These are why we call the precepts training precepts. They're practices that we learn from and the feedback loops are there all the time if we let ourselves feed them, feel them. We don't have to bring in blaming or judging. The Buddha also said that we can't know that everything we experience is a result of karma. There are other things that influence what happens, things like the weather and accidents, um, illness, often things that are much bigger than this individual unfolding that we're not in control of. So again, not helpful to always try and pin everything on this unfolding of karma and that it's so complex that we can't figure it out. So not helpful to try and figure out the specifics of why this particular thing, why this particular experience, unhappy mind state of ourselves or you know, illness, whatever. Not helpful. But seeing the patterns and seeing the choice points here and now going forward, that we can learn from. I like how Gil Fronsdale, one of our teachers at Spirit Rock, says about karma, we're not to blame, but we're responsible. And it's really that forward movement, rather than looking in the rearview mirror about blame and judgment, but as we land in this moment, what's skillful going forward? What can we learn going forward? And there's a poem I found by William Stafford called The Little Ways That Encourage Good Fortune. Wisdom is having things right in your life and knowing why. If you do not have things right in your life, you will be overwhelmed. You may be heroic, but you will not be wise. If you have things right in your life, but do not know why, you are just lucky, and you will not move in the little ways that encourage good fortune. And again, moving forward, not basing it all on good luck or bad luck, but actually being part of the process. That's what makes the difference. And to know, you know, even though this talks about the why, it's not in the nitty-gritty detail, but knowing these patterns, mindfulness is essential. Samasati, right? Or wise mindfulness, as we've spoken about. So important because its very functioning is to develop the wholesome, the skillful, the wise response, and to reduce, diminish, let go of what's unwholesome or skillful just through mindfulness, really starting to trust that. You bring wisdom in, wisdom and clear seeing, and again, we can change the karmic unfolding. That's the very point, power, and opportunity, possibility of this path that the Buddha spoke about. And there's another set of teachings where um, this relationship between equanimity and karma are pointed to. Um, Many of you may know it. It's called the Five Subjects for Frequent Recollection. And it's called that 
because we're invited to reflect on it regularly. And there are many monasteries where it's chanted every day, morning, evening, daily, um, because it just reminds us of these great truths and invites us into acceptance of this is the way things are. So the five subjects are, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise. will will become separated from me. And then lastly, the fifth one, I am the owner of my karma, heir to my karma, born of my karma. Whatever I shall do for good or for ill, of that I will be the heir. And so this pairing again of these deep um, pointers to equanimity, this is the nature of this body. Not different, not separate. Nature to, for, to get old, to sicken, and to die. To stand in that truth is radical. And you might recognize those first three as the three of the four heavenly messengers that inspired the Buddha on his quest for awakening. He said, how can people go about in the humdrum of their lives knowing this to be true for all of us, that old age, sickness, and death are coming? And so when you hear them, they may sound kind of grim to have that as a reflection, but actually they can be very freeing because we're not in contention with the truth of things. This is equanimity. This is how things are. We cannot make it otherwise. So to live in alignment to that is actually freeing. We're not caught in in clinging and trying to hold on. And so when old age, sickness, death, in whatever variation comes, we don't feel that something's bad or wrong or there's a mistake here. What's going on? This is the nature. And so there's this classic teaching from Ajahn Chah. I don't know if we've shared it yet, but it's so good, even if we have, worth repeating, about the glass. You say, don't break my glass. Can you prevent something that's breakable? from breaking? If it doesn't break now, it will break later on. If you don't break it, someone else will. If someone else doesn't break it, one of the chickens will. The Buddha says to accept this. He penetrated the truth of these things, seeing that this glass is already broken. Whenever you use this glass, you should reflect that it's already broken. Do you understand this? The Buddha's understanding was like this. He saw the broken glass within the unbroken one. He saw the broken glass within the unbroken one. Whenever its time is up, it will break. Develop this kind of understanding. Use this glass. Look after it until one day it slips out of your hand. Smash. No problem. Why is there no problem? Because you saw its brokenness before it broke. Such a great teaching. Enjoy the glass. Use the glass. Use this body. Treat it well. Take care of it. But know that this is its nature. 
These are powerful teachings, pointers to equanimity. Larry Rosenberg, who often teaches here and and founded uh, Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, has a great book on these reflections called Living in the Light of Death, where he just talks about how they have permeated his practice and really been instrumental in his uh, waking up and, and living his life fully. Because if we don't open to these deep truths in some fundamental way, in some clear way, that suffering. We're trying to control and hold on to and shape things in ways they can't be held on to and shaped. Mark Epstein in uh, The Trauma of Everyday Life talks about how these constant impinges when we don't understand them, when we're trying to fight and control them, are traumatic for us. He says, we are all traumatized by life, by its unpredictability, its randomness, its lack of regard for our feelings and the losses it brings. But the traumas of everyday life, if they do not destroy us, become bearable, even illuminating, when we learn to relate to them differently. And so this practice of equanimity, of karma, of mindfulness, is to turn towards the truth of how things are right now and understand their nature, not be in contention with the way things are and these laws, these patterns of karma and causes and conditions. Then we can truly develop a mind that has the capacity to be at rest and at ease in the midst of that. Because it doesn't mean that those things won't happen. But we have an understanding of them, and the mind can find balance. So back to equanimity. The Pali word is upekka. And it originally meant to look at and perceive patiently, this sense of um, opening to things as they are. And there's another word that's also often translated as equanimity, which is tatra majatata. And it literally means standing in the middle of all this, or there in the middleness. And I love that because it's this pointing to the balance that is equanimity. If you walk on a tightrope, you can't, you know, hold yourself in a rigid stance, right? It has to have that balance and responsiveness. Um, So equanimity is like that. It's not static. It's not rigid. It's this responsive moving with the experiences of our lives, but not trying to hold away what's difficult, hold on to what we see as being happiness, but actually training our hearts and minds towards this possibility of resilience, of openness, of fearlessness, basically, because this is how things are. These are the deep truths. And so we can start to understand the way things are. We see these laws and these patterns, and we trust the wisdom that we have. We trust that the glass is already broken, even as we use the glass in its unbrokenness. 
And so it's not a cold and unfeeling way of relating to experience, because if we're really pushing things away like that, that's not equanimity. Equanimity has to be in the middle of how things are, not holding at arm's length. And we start to see that equanimity, that spacious balance of mind, is actually the natural state of mind. This may not seem to be your moment-to-moment experience or very much your experience, but we start to see on retreat and why we come on retreat is to see as we take things away, as we reduce the reactivity of mind, the basic nature of mind, as Joseph was pointing to this morning, is vast and spacious. We're so used to what we've added the narrator, the commentator, the judging voice, that we think that's the default. But we have seen, you have all seen, that that too comes and goes. And when that judging, criticizing, commenting voice isn't there, where there's just bare awareness, what is there? There's not a strong sense of self. Sometimes, as Joseph was pointing to, there's not any reference point at all. There's just, as the Tibetans would say, this mind being intrinsically empty, naturally radiant, and ceaselessly responsive. And that's the union of emptiness and compassion. We can start to trust that more. Perhaps this morning you had a taste of that in the big mind meditation. Once we know that for ourselves, that that is the nature of the mind, and everything else is what we've added. And sure, we've created deep grooves and ruts and patterns in the mind, but they're all conditioned. Causes and conditioned. Knowing that, they can become unconditioned, both in this relative sense of the nature of this mind, but also its capacity to open to the unconditioned and to see that we have choices in that unfolding and that through mindfulness, through wisdom, through compassion, through all of these tools and trainings that we've been practicing here, we can train this mind to know that for ourselves not second-hand, not hearsay, not as some distant thing to get to, but possible here and now. And can deepen, deepen in this understanding. And that this is not just for our own happiness and well-being, but as the Buddha would say again and again, for the happiness of others, happiness and well-being of others, and the happiness and well-being of both. This is also the interrelated nature of experience. So equanimity as a supporter for that opening and understanding, bringing wisdom into experience. I finish with the words of Bhikkhu Bodhi, a great scholar and practitioner on upekkha, equanimity. He says, the real meaning of upekkha is equanimity, not indifference in a sense of unconcern for others, 
as a spiritual virtue, upeka means stability in this face of the fluctuations of worldly fortune. It is an evenness of mind, unshakable freedom of mind, and an, a state of inner equipoise that cannot be upset by gain and loss, honor and dishonor, praise and blame, pleasure and pain. Upeka is freedom from all points of self-reference. It is indifference only to the demands of the ego self with its craving for pleasure and position, not indifference to the well-being of one's fellow human beings. True equanimity is the pinnacle of the four social attitudes that the Buddhist texts call the divine abodes, boundless loving-kindness, compassion, altruistic joy, and equanimity. Equanimity does not override and negate the preceding three, but perfects and consummates them. So let's just let the words settle into silence. Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.